This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be covering the endlessly fascinating market of space. While we typically focus on an individual company for business breakdowns, we thought an industry primer was the best approach for this expanding market. With Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos directing so much energy to the promise of space, it is impossible not to dream about what lies ahead. To cover this endless topic, I'll be joined by a previous guest, Trent Griffin. While Trent's full-time job is as a director at Microsoft, his experience with satellites and endless curiosity make him ideal for this conversation. We cover how our ground economy is enabled by space today, what excites him most about the space-to-space opportunities in the future, and how space compares to other network foundations. I hope you enjoy this great space primer with Trent Griffin. So, Tran, you and I have been talking about doing this for a little while now. I am so fascinated by the topic of space, and we're going to treat this as sort of a breakdown of the entire space economy, past, present, and future. Thank you for doing this with me. I think the best place to orient the audience would be with some numbers and some narrative around just the size and scope of the space economy today. Can you give us just an introductory, this is where we are now to launch our conversation? Yeah, I think the key thing to understand about the space economy is it's two things, which is it's space to earth and earth to space. So there's that. And then there's space to space, which is brand new, which is things happening solely in space. And the interesting thing about the space economy is most of it happens on the ground, which is you have approximately today, $6 billion launch market. And then you have this $13, $14 billion satellite manufacturing market. And of course, they're all made on the ground and then they're sent up in space by launchers. But the biggest market by far is services, which is 130 billion or so, and ground equipment, which is another 130 billion. So if you look at it, what's enabled by space is mostly happening on Earth, and that's the biggest business. And we've sort of always understood this. And one way to think about it is math. You put a satellite up there, and you got one satellite, and you launch it once, and it's up there, and it's up there, well, with a geo for like 10 years, a Leo, not for as long, but it's one thing. But you have millions of devices talking to that satellite. Obviously, you have a lot more spending going on on the ground. And so all these things that we have on the ground are basically enabled by space. That's the biggest opportunity. Morgan Stanley says the space economy is growing to $1 trillion in 2040, which is a big guess. It's a swag. The biggest piece of it is really what it enables on the ground. All the devices. The biggest thing that's happening today, I sent a tweet about this this morning, but we have chips and everything. And those chips run software and they're all connected by networks. And this crazy thing happened in 1993, which created this thing called the internet and everything was connected super, super easily. And space enables that because it's ubiquitous in terms of its ability to give coverage everywhere. So as chips and software and networks become more important, ubiquitous connectivity becomes more and more important. Talk a little bit about, let's finish off space to earth to start, and then we'll talk a lot about space to space as well. What do you think are the important historical 
milestones that got us to here. So as you think about the history of space, people will be obviously familiar with the big names like NASA and SpaceX, but like who and what are the major historical milestones that you think matter as we think about the directional arrow of progress into the future? Well, obviously, Sputnik was a big deal. When the Russians launched Sputnik, that set things off. And we had to respond to that, said Kennedy. And so we did. And we devoted a huge portion of GDP to basically catching up with Sputnik and putting people on the moon. And it was an amazing effort. I think there's some number, like it's over 1% of the economy at its peak was going to this one thing. There are all these wonderful externalities from space that people always talk about. Well, if we didn't have space, we wouldn't have Tang. That's the joke one. But there's lots of other technologies that came out of the R&D that went into space. There are always externalities. So that was sort of huge. But then we put somebody on the moon and then there was just like, well, there's no goal. But there also, there wasn't the will or the ability to keep devoting that much of GDP to space. And then we moved into an era, which was a strange era, where the way to make money was to basically to be a cost plus contractor and sell stuff to NASA and the government. And that produced huge dysfunction. And it produced dysfunction because the contractors thought, if we lower the cost of getting people to space, we will make less money. And this is demand elasticity. And so they thought low cost is bad. And so we were sort of floating along in that environment. And we get the Senate launch system, which I won't go into, but basically huge bloated jobs programs. Some entrepreneurs came along, particularly Elon, and he said, basically, no, the market is different. If we lower the price of launch, there's going to be more demand. And this is a difference in price elasticity. And the model hasn't been proven yet, but he believes if you take the price of launch from $20,000, which is what it was when I started looking on it, down to $2,500, people are going to launch more stuff and they're going to find new uses. And this is a classic question and we're going to see how it sorts out. And then Starship is really crazy in that he talks about taking the cost of launch down to $20 a kilogram to the moon because the 20000 or the 12500 on a Falcon 9 just gets you up to low Earth orbit. And so if you reduce the price of launch, then you enable all kinds of new things. Recently, he took this one rideshare program up where he had like 88 satellites on it and all kinds of experiments are going on small kinds of messaging and imaging and just all these little things. And what happens with experimentation is you find something and suddenly you've got Airbnb and you've got Nutam. And what happens with a lower price isn't always known. And sometimes, like Bill Gates famously said about radial tires, sometimes it's just people spend a lot less money and they drive around a lot more, but it enables other things. Lower price launch is going to enable a lot. We just don't know what it is. And so the exciting thing is Morgan Stanley says, okay, we're going to have a $1 trillion market in 2040. Half of it's going to be broadband. And this is what we believe. That's the swag. They don't know. The market's going to be bigger. But then the most interesting thing to me is most of the value is going to be created on the ground. And it's going to be created on the ground because the thing I talked about before, which is devices need connectivity and they need ubiquitous connectivity. The promise of the space-based economy to me is mostly the service that enables on Earth and devices. And the thing that's interesting about wireless in general, which is where I started my career, is they have all these frequencies and you have really low frequencies. And the good news about them is they go a long ways and they go through walls. And you know, I can have a cell phone call and from just about anywhere, particularly on water, bounces off water and it's good. But as you get higher, it doesn't go through stuff anymore. And the higher you get, the worse the propagation. But when you're low, you don't have much bandwidth. And so in terms of space, we have the little EOs, which was Orbcom and things like that. And they were designed to basically replicate paging and messaging and IoT. And the good news is it goes through things. Then 
along came the big Leos. And the big Leos were about replicating voice. And unfortunately, they sort of did the classic mistake, which is they said, okay, we're going to create a cell phone that works everywhere. Well, it did. It worked everywhere. But yet the joke that people talk about it is, yeah, big Leo satellite phones are great for people who are outstanding in a field. You literally had to go and stand in a field because it didn't work on a car, didn't work on a house. They were expensive and clunky. And then you say, okay, well, then what comes after that? And that's where I got involved in 1993 with my friend Rust And we said, hey, we're going to create this new thing. It's going to be a broadband Leo. And it's going to use this KA band spectrum, which is way up there. Now, the good news is there's a lot of hertz. The bad news is it doesn't go through anything. So you got to actually have line of sight. And to have line of sight, you got to have high mask angle. We want it to be like fiber, so it's got to be low in the sky, not a geostationary satellite, which half-second speed of light. And so we said, all right, well, if it's low and they're spinning around the world, you got to have a lot of them because you always have to have one in sight. So you have hundreds of satellites. So we said 840 satellites in 1993. When we did that, people said, well, you're just nuts. You know, that's crazy. That's crazy. And for us, it was like we were young. It was the Internet era. It was like crazy. That's cool. That's where the optionality is in things that are You want it to be completely crazy. You want it to be half crazy. But the point is, there's all these systems. And the bigger point is, everything in wireless and everything in space is a trade-off. Go higher in frequency, get more hertz. Bad news, doesn't go through everything. And the good news, though, is with software chips today, you can have adaptive networks that use the frequency that works. And so the cool thing is, we have a new platform, and these satellites are really, really tall towers, except they don't have a tower. But They put this ability to connect with things. And so I think the biggest opportunity is less connecting people and more connecting devices. So managing a Tesla or some car in 15 years, 10 years, five years, we don't know the number, but it's got some tiles on it. And those tiles can connect to networks in space. And those things are updating the software in the car and doing all kinds of services that we can't imagine. And that's coming. And so the thing that's happening is we're in this connectivity soup and it's getting richer and richer and richer. And so what fascinates me today are antennas, which is how do we take advantage of these new platforms that provide connectivity to everybody on earth? And so this is space to earth and earth is bigger. Launch is a big market. But if you take the price of launch and you take the price down to $200, is it a bigger market or is it a smaller market? Well, the bet is, but you want people like Jeff Bezos is going to be a lot bigger. Might be, might not be. But it's going to enable a lot of stuff. It's sort of like the internet boom. We built all this national subsea fiber networks, and it was a bust. But those cables were around to say, hey, let's connect data centers and create cloud connectivity. So there's always an externality. Big Leos are still up there. Little Leos are still up there. SpaceX in one web will be up there regardless. No, the question is, who makes the money? Where are the margins? As we've talked about before, this is the funnest game on earth. We don't know the outcome. If we knew the outcome, it'd be boring. <laughs> like, who would want to do that? <laughs> and it's, so it's big. It has impact. It involves space. And then the other thing that's cool for some of us who watched the first steps on the moon is a rocket launch is a huge bomb filled with explosives. And it has a nozzle on one end, and it goes up into space. It's like, <laughs> that's cool. You know, it's this explosive thing that shoots up into space. It's like, Wow. <laughs> And it's cool to watch one. It is. If you've ever seen a launch, it's amazing. I'm dying to see one. I haven't seen one. I want to bring my son badly. You've teased that like a million interesting topics. And I want to make sure we cover our basis in terms of some basic terminology before we get to the history of demand for launch, because 
like you said, we have no idea whether the launch market's going to be where the profits lie or what. We'll get into that more later. But I do want to talk about the sort of history of launch at this point and the cost per kilogram. You mentioned some of the orbits. Can you describe what is LEO? What is GEO? What are the various different places in space that matter? And how do we get to them today? Okay, so we have a bunch of different orbits. And there's only one geostationary orbit, which is 36,000 kilometers in the sky over the equator. And this guy, Arthur C. Clarke, figured it out that if you put this satellite in this one place, it's going to stay on the same place relative to Earth. And so the good news is, with the right one, you can see a third of the Earth, basically, because a lot of this stuff is geometry. And radio waves can't go through things, including optical. And so basically, it's up at this one orbit. So that's a geostationary orbit. But there's only one of those. And there's only so many slots as you go around their orbit. It's a ring. Think of it like a Saturn ring around the equator. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then there are other orbits that move in relationship to the Earth, the higher and lower. And they can be inclined to the poles or not inclined. Now, again, the same trade-offs. The lower you are, the less it costs to move Because you have to use energy to move mass up from the Earth. So it's cheaper to put things in low Earth orbit. And they spin around. And there are a lot of low Earth orbits. And one of them, the space station's at one. And then you go up a little further. And that's where Starlink is going to be. Go up a little further. And that's where one was going to be. And then there's another orbit called in the middle, like Mio. And you get a system like O3B that's up there. And then there's all these crazy things that are basically math around how you're inclined to the Earth. And there's Monoyo, elliptical. There's all these ways you can basically spin around the earth. And so all of them have their pluses and their minuses. And just like in wireless, what's good is bad and bad is good. And so the funnest thing about space, not the funnest thing, but one of the funnest things is you get to make all these trade-offs. And the even funner thing is every discipline is involved. And so what's cool about SpaceX, what's cool about Bezos's project, Blue Origin, and go down the list of all of the space pay programs is every discipline is involved. You got chemical, you got physicists, you got electrical engineers, you got to write software for this stuff. You got to understand the math and the physics of everything. And then you got solid state electronics and you have systems and you got business regulation, all these things. And it all has to work together and you all have to work together. And so the cool thing when you're on a team like that is you're working with all these smart people and you're learning about all these things. The amazing thing is if you are like Jeff Bezos or if you are like Elon Musk, And you have an ability to pick up new disciplines quickly because that's the way your mind works. People talk about Elon as just being a sponge. He'll meet you and he'll download you in a couple of hours. (laughs) And he's in a new discipline. And I think Jeff can do the same sort of thing. And so it's a playground for people who want to know a lot about a lot and explore new things and look for the trade-offs. Like, how do you do this thing? Like the amazing thing that Elon did is because he's physics and economics at Penn, I think. And he basically took the industry from bottoms up and he said, I'm going to examine every assumption and I'm going to turn it on its head and see if I can make it work. And the fundamental one was you can't have a good business if every time you drive to the store, your car ends up in the ocean and then you can't use it again. <laughs> That's fundamental. Like, we got to change that. We got to change that assumption. And everybody else saying, well, it's got to be that way. And one of the reasons they were thinking that way because of what I was talking about before, which is they're in a cost plus business. And something that costs less means they make less money. And it's just wrong. And so he just said, no, we're going to make these rockets that land. And so I was talking about how cool it is to see a rocket go up. It's even cooler to see one go down. And I've seen it on film. I've not seen it in person yet. But to see that thing land, I was like, that's cool. I just go in two of them at the same time. I was going, whoa, this is unbelievable. The software, the engineering. And the last time he did one on land, I think it was 
in Florida, whatever. Like they hit the X and it was like clear and it's beautiful and what, but that is amazing. And then the other thing is amazing is he took all the modern tools that have been developed in all the startups around the world and said, we're going to use the latest things. The traditional assumption in building satellites and building things for space is very conservative. Can't take any risk. You take proven technology in the ground, and then you gradually move it into space, and it's rad hard, uh, lasts forever, and all these things that actually add cost. And from their standpoint, it was like, we're adding costs. It's pretty good. We're going to make more money because NASA is going to pay us more. And Musk said, no, we're going to take the latest technology. We're going to reduce costs, and we're going to develop in public. And we're going to have this iterative development where we're blowing up rockets all the time. And the old traditional space people are saying, he's blowing up rockets. And he's saying, yeah, blowing up rockets is a cheap way to develop a low-cost rocket. I'm learning, yeah. I'm learning. I'm building in public, and I'm learning every time we have a launch. And then the other thing that's amazing is the more times you launch, the more times you learn, the more times you learn, the better your product gets, the more times you launch, and you get into this feedback loop. And that's where Falcon is today. And so he's launching twice a month, maybe not in June and July, because some regulatory issues. But when you launch that much, you just learn every time. And then the other thing is we have this thing today where you have a lot of data and you have machine learning and you're getting all this data from every launch. And it's not just people saying, okay, maybe we'll tweak that. It's like a computer saying, this is obvious. If you tweak this, you do this, you can change this. And so what we have is this meeting of new approaches, turning things upside down, modern information tools, modern information science, the ability to use machine learning, What's going on when that thing lands is amazing. Every time it lands, it's going to get better at landing. Every time it get better at landing, it lasts longer. It lasts longer. It gets cheaper. And so you have this feedback effect in space that's never existed before. And Blue Origin is doing this too. And other people will do this too. We got Electron and Astra and everybody else on 3D manufacturing, on volume manufacturing, launching in strange places, like lots and lots of experiments. This is like the real world. Like space was all of a sudden yanked from this old clubby, Senate launch system, jobs program, port world to, oh, wow, this is a business. Things are happening fast. We're using information tools that everybody else is using. We're applying modern techniques. We're moving quickly. And so that's what's so interesting. And again, the most interesting thing is we don't know how it's going to turn out. Because if we, we did know how it was going to turn out, I'd do something else. That's me. If we think about the Starting to zero in on this demand elasticity question, which, as you pointed out to me, is like the most interesting question in this whole equation. Just talk us through literally how the launch costs have come down. So maybe from the very first Falcon in SpaceX through to what is Starship? What might Starship do relative to Falcon 9? Give us a little quick history lesson of how much it cost before SpaceX to launch a kilogram into space and where we might be going with Starship. You had these defense-based national pride NASA thing, beat Russians to the moon thing going on. And it leaked into commercial, into private. And they took these rockets and they made them private and they launched some payloads. But it was $30,000, $25,000 a kilogram. And they started to get a little cheaper. But the rockets were still dropping into the ocean. You could never reuse them. And it was never going to get to Elon's goal, which is cheap enough so people can go interplanetary. You got to get it very, very cheap. And so with this crazy Falcon 9 and the book liftoff in the first chapter is like amazing. We both read it. And NASA, to its credit, said, we're kind of stagnant here. We need to have some people do some different things. We're going to give these people a little bit of money and see what they can do. And what they did was they said, well, we can reuse these things. We can use the latest technology, just all these assumptions. And so then now they got it down to $2,500 a kilogram to Leo. 
To Geo, it's more because you got to go higher. To the moon, it's more because you got to go further. Go to Mars is really a lot. But the point is, it's getting cheaper. And then Starship is basically bigger in the geometry of, as you expand the size of a vessel that you're going to put stuff in, you basically get more efficient. You know, it's the same reason why oil tanks are so big in Oklahoma. Make a bigger oil tank, it's more efficient. So Starship is really going to be the ultimate state-of-the-art in how do we make things cheaper. And then he wants to do other cray things, which is he wants this thing to land without fins and be grabbed by a huge mechanical arm. Like, that's nuts! I love that shit! This is great! <laughs> and to watch that thing for the first time, is going to be, people's eyes are going to be bugging out, like the first landing where he hit the mark. It's like, especially people in the industry, they're going, they had to be just dropping a load in their pants when they're going, this thing just landed! <laughs> Somebody else is going to be saying, this thing just got grabbed by a huge mechanical arm. What the hell? That's going to take off in two hours again. It's like, wow. <laughs> and when you get a breakthrough moment like that, just watching it, you can't help but smile. And so there are these moments where you just have to have these half crazy people say, well, this is half crazy. There's optionality. A lot of them is going to fail. This thing is going to go. And then this is being applied to space right now. So many things, 88 satellites, lots of stuff going on different experiments. Some of it's going to work. Some of it isn't. With launch specifically, so let's just say Starship has us marching towards whatever it is, $200 a kilogram, maybe down even lower than that. More experiments are going to be run. I can't help but think of launch as laying fiber or laying rail track or whatever that tends to get over-invested in. There's a lot of new launch companies. And then the returns to the launch providers aren't great, but potentially the stuff going up creates great returns on capital. Maybe it's Starlink, maybe it's something else. Can you talk about how SpaceX has dealt with that by sort of being their own demand via Starlink, what that is, what literally they are doing and what's exciting about it or interesting to you? Well, what's most interesting about it to me is, first of all, when you listen to him talk recently, he said, what's our biggest risk? Our biggest risk is financial. We got to basically not run out of cash. And one of the things that's, as we've talked about, most uncertain is, is there going to be enough demand for launch? And one of the ways to create enough demand for launch is to be your own demand. And so they're Starlink. And whenever he has a like this 88 satellite thing that he sent up, rideshare, had room for three extra Starlink satellites, he threw them in. Like, why not? And then the opposite is the case. Let's say eventually he's doing replacements or whatever, and he happens to have in a Starship this big portion of the launcher that doesn't have anything in it. He can price that thing down to marginal cost like an airline, and you can throw stuff in there. So student experiments, somebody's ashes, he wants them to go up. Say so there's a business doing that. But the point here is that it is a bit like airlines in marginal cost. But he's basically saying, look, I'm going to be my own demand. And the other launchers, their eyes are popping out of their head like a Warner Brothers cartoon. And they're saying, wow, this guy's got his own demand. He can fill up his rides. He can launch twice a month on a schedule. And they know that volume means everything. If you're not making 30 million phones, you're out. Like LG just dropped it. You're out. And everything is volume dependent because the more you make, cheaper it gets. And the more you make, the better your product gets because you have more data and you have more customers. And that's just the way it goes. And space is the same way. So he has his own demand. And then the system is super interesting is he just said, unlike the others, well, these enterprise guys, they pay a lot of money, but I'm just going to keep it simple. And I'm going to be like Tesla. I'm going to have no dealers. I'm going to go to direct to consumer, have this easy ship unit. You could pull that out of the box. And the interesting thing about there's so many, it's hard to explain all this at the same time. But the thing about LEOs is once it's going around the earth, spinning around the earth, you cover everywhere. 
Now, you may not cover the poles if you have an inclined orbit, but basically, to cover one place, you have to cover every place. That's good. So you have the same coverage in New York City that you do in the most rural place in Africa or wherever it is in Asia. The good news is everybody gets coverage. The bad news is there's a lot of coverage in places where there's nobody, like over the oceans and all that. And so you basically have this blanket of coverage and you have to sell it to everybody. So that means you want to serve airlines, you're going to have to want to serve ships. And then in a cell like my cell in Seattle, which is high and can see more satellites because of the way the orbit's inclined, you still only have so much capacity in a cell. And so he says this in his Mobile World Congress speech is basically there'll be N units that can be in every cell. And I think the state of Washington, which is not everybody's reference point, so it's mine because I live here, is like it's 200 cells or something like that. In every cell, there's so much capacity and you can't oversell that. Because you oversell that, you oversubscribe, you oversubscribe, you can have bad costs because you only have so much capacity in the satellites. Eventually, I think he's going to start with consumer, but I think the highest value use will actually be things like cars going down the freeway or trucks going down the freeway or planes flying around, and it'll migrate to that. There was this funny thing on the internet last week. Some Starlink employee, I think, had to be duct taped a dishy antenna to his car and was driving around. And they said a cop stopped him because it was blocking his view. I think that was all stage, but there's no way it worked. Like the dishy doesn't work on the move. It just can't. It's physics, it just can't. And so it was just somebody having fun with it. But eventually there will be an electronically steered antenna that will look like a panel. It'll look like a large post-it note. And it'll be in several paces built into the skin of your car, like it's built into the skin of a F-16 or an F-35. And you'll have connectivity everywhere. And it'll be able to steer all kinds of places. And I'm involved in a company that's making antennas using a technology called metamaterials. And those kinds of approaches are going to allow every device to have connectivity. And satellites will be a part of that. And the yield per bit, which is always the key question when you have a LEO, because you only have so much capacity. Really big geo. The new ones going up will have a terabyte per second of capacity. So that's really cool. That's a lot of capacity. But as I told you before we started this call, what's coming out of the Microsoft campus is way bigger than a terabyte. And that's just one customer. And you can take one fiber optic cable in a data center and send 800 gigabytes in some advanced uses right now, but it's only get bigger. So satellite will never be a great trunking technology just because it needs so many bits per person. Fiber's better. But the important thing is over time, the use will be higher and most valuable to a device that's on the move, that's doing something interesting, as opposed to, oh, I'm home and I want to watch modern world stock car racing or whatever the hell it is. That's a low value use. If I was to think about SpaceX, the discounted cash flow of SpaceX, in your view, is most of its value likely from apps like Starlink or systems like Starlink versus launch? It seems to me like that might be the direction. Obviously, they're investing a lot in that. Is that a convenient way to think about it that ultimately launch is just sort of a commodity and probably hard to make money in unless you're the scale player. And even then, like for SpaceX, it might be a small part of their actual business. Some of it depends on what Elon Musk and Bezos decide to do. Because if Elon really wants to go to Mars, he needs it to be $10 a kilogram. And if he's willing to say, well, every time I get a cost reduction, I'm just going to price it down to marginal cost, then it's just going to keep marching down. And what he's got this sort of interesting thing is that he can do that as long as Starlink is a gusher of cash. And I think Starlink will be most likely to be a gusher of cash, not from selling bandwidth, but from selling services on top of that bandwidth. I mean, it's always the case. 
you pay a hundred bucks a month for your internet connectivity, but there's a lot of CapEx to deliver that. And that's an okay business. But the stuff that's riding on top of that, all of the businesses that run on top of that, that's like super valuable. We ran the economy during the pandemic on top of all that stuff. We have Office and all of our other products that are operating on top of that. And that's where the margins are. That's where the money is. And so I think eventually all of these questions play off of what they decide to do. Now, let's just take the Falcon. He's charging $2,500 a kilogram. He's got a margin in there because there's nobody close to him. But if somebody was close to him, like Blue Origin or somebody like that, he could say, okay, well, I want more share and I want the price to go down because I want more volume to happen so I can be even cheaper. I'll take it down to 1500 I'll take it down to 500 with Starship. I'll take it down to 200 And if he does that and your product is some state-supported thing that has thousands of dollars of costs based on the fact that your launch is falling into the ocean or it's a jobs fragment or whatever, like Houston, we have a problem. And so a lot of it is how far he prices it down. But even if he does, even if launch increases from $6 billion to $12 billion, it's peanuts in terms of financing a mission to Mars and big things, as opposed to the ground services market is $130 billion. The ground equipment is $130 billion. And I think the services market will have a trajectory up that will make Starlink much more important. So to me, SpaceX is a services company that has an attached launch business. And it's an important business, that launch business, because it enables the services, because it's got to get cheaper because they're competing against 5G, they're competing against fiber, it's got to get a lot cheaper. And then also there have to be new uses, which terrestrial can't do. GPS isn't just one example. Messaging, even like Iridium, which is a big Leo, which is for voice, you'll see them more and more a data services company. Oil lines, oil pipelines, ships, things like that, short messaging. Everybody is moving in the direction of services and to manage services in particular. Just look at the way the modern military works. More and more of it is special forces enabled by broadband that's ubiquitous. When you land and you do a special forces mission in some name a country, but you're there, you want those people to have broadband. You want the drones to have broadband. It's got to be everywhere. It has to work. It has to be low latency. And so all these things that are enabled by it, that's where the money is. Just sending a tube up into space is enabling. And your analogy to fiber is an excellent one. Before we go on to some of the crazier stuff, the moon and Mars and space to space stuff, is there an interesting inventory or way to think about the types of satellites that we're putting up there? So we've talked a lot about communications. We've talked less about like something like imaging. What is the sort of taxonomy of useful probes, satellites, whatever you want to call them, that are interesting today and might change in the future? One of the fun things about satellites today is it used to be you had this giant thing and it was called a bus and that's what you hung your stuff on. And the defense contractors made it. And it was if you didn't fit in that thing, if you didn't have that kind of demand, you couldn't do it. But along came some people and they said, no, we can create these little things called CubeSats, which come in with what are called U's, which is a unit. And they're small. And you can put hundreds of them on a single dispenser and shoot them off into space. And you can do these little things, these little experiments. And among the experiments are imaging, and then there's communications, and then there's sensing. And what business talked about is doing manufacturing up there. So you can eventually have platforms. So you've got things like you think about the space station today, but think about something in space, which is robotic, and it's using microgravity and whatever properties are in space to do something that can't be done on the ground on a cheaper basis. And so 
literally anything you can think of that's being done on Earth can be done from space. And we haven't exhausted all the experiments yet. But usually it's something like optical. So optical has imaging, optical has different properties. And then there's other things that aren't optical, which are communications-based. And some of them are really big, like a geo can be gigantic, take up a whole large launcher. And a Leo, those things can be as small as a U, which three lunch boxes kind of thing. And it's tiny, but with those tiny things, you can do experiments cheaply. Those 88 satellites had a lot of experiments on it. They're just everything. And there's every orbit. And the one thing about space that's also a challenge is there are no electrical outlets out there. And so everything has to be solar powered. And you see some of these arrays today, the way they unfold. Solar's getting better, solar's getting cheaper, wave will unfold bigger, getting more power in space. Now, you'll never have the same power you have down here, but there's more power up there. And so once you have more power, then you can start to do more things. The other thing you can't do is you can't send a repair guy up there with a ladder. You're going to have people who are going to build systems that already have them today. They just did it with a geo where you send up like a little repair thing and it attaches to your satellite and gives you more power or fixes this or whatever. You have automated. So just about everything you can think of. And that's the fun thing about venture is the optionality, which is not everything's going to work, but that's the way it's designed to be. There's always a nonlinear return and you're always going to have a power law of some things aren't going to work and some things are. And people say, oh, all these things failed. Failure is inherent in innovation and power laws are everywhere. It's like cream, except it's with, I'm not going to go off into rap hip hop thing. (laughs) (laughs) Before we leave space to earth, I'm going to lump in space manufacturing in this category, because ultimately the stuff being manufactured in space, at least to start, would probably come back down to earth as useful. Can you talk about this trend as a firm like Varda that is newly launched that I think has ambitions to go be a manufacturing plant in space for certain kinds of thing, whether that's fiber or growing human organs, I've heard. Like there's some crazy stuff you start to hear. What do you think about in-space manufacturing as an industry? Well, there's two things. First thing is, the easiest thing is to say, there's some things in zero gravity that are better to make. It's just the environment is better for that. And it can be some pharmaceutical thing, it can be some electronic thing. So finding some things that is better to make in space, that's pretty straightforward people doing experiments around that right now. And then there's the more radical thing, which is what Bezos is talking about, which is zone earth residential and put polluting manufacturing in space. That's big. That's a really big idea. I love the fact that people are thinking that big. I think there's physics challenges. If you get the price low enough, the launch to price low enough, and going to space is like taking a bus, all kinds of things can happen. We've talked a lot about All of this in service of a better life and situation on Earth, whether it's your boat or zoning Earth residential or making stuff cheaper or making communications more ubiquitous, it kind of all comes back to this amazing planet that we have. Can we talk a bit about the moon and Mars and what you see as interesting? Obviously, Elon is very focused with SpaceX, this big, big, hairy, audacious goal. What do you think of these things? Are these realistic? Are you interested by them? Are you as interested by them as you are by all this other stuff we've talked about? What do you think about building stuff space to space on the moon, on Mars, et cetera? One of the interview statements Elon made in his keynote at Mobile World Congress was his motivation for SpaceX was to move consciousness beyond Earth. And that's a big goal. Pretty that's big. a big, <laughs> that's a BHAG. And his goal with Tesla was basically to make Earth a better place by 
electrifying the automobile. And you can argue about valuation or whatever, but what he's done to force humanity to move to electrical is remarkable. So anyway, so his big, hairy, audacious goal, if you say, okay, well, he's going to spend $30 billion to do that or 60 or whatever it is, that's not that much money. Not in terms of the global economy. People say, oh, well, we should be working on this instead. There's plenty of capital. It's everywhere. There's plenty of cash for someone to make a try to take a human to Mars. And there's optionality associated and externality associated with trying to do that. Now, a big, hairy, audacious goal is about consciousness moving on into space. Well, maybe someday we'll have to skedaddle off of this rock and go somewhere else. And so him doing that, it's a small amount of money. The amount of money that goes into all the other things. Are there bigger problems right now? Sure. Is there enough capital to do those two? Absolutely. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. In fact, going to space is not even chewing gum at the same time. This is some tiny thing. It's not big. Why is everybody focused on it? Because it's a damn bomb going off on a launch pad. You know, it's cool. It's interesting. Elon's crazy. You know, he's crazy in a good way. It's the crazy people who make the world happen. Jeffrey West at Santa Fe has got this great thing about why cities are so amazing. Because they have crazy people. And occasionally, the crazy people hit it right out of the park. But the important thing is, we don't know. Optionality is good. Let's spend some money on space to space. Not a large amount of money in the greater scheme of things. And it's one guy doing it, two guys doing it. There's optionality in it. And so let's go and let's try some things. It's a terrible world when there aren't lots of people out doing experiments and finding new things. Anything else about space to space that you find interesting or you think a audience just getting to know the kind of business of space might find fascinating that we haven't talked about? Well, I think one of the things is we need big horizons and we need particularly young people to dream about big things. And when people like Bezos were growing up or people like my age, we were inspired by somebody walking on the moon. We were inspired by the technology and all that. And so we have to have some people in the world who are thinking about the biggest possible things. And so the number of people get inspired and they end up doing something else. They end up founding PayPal or they end up doing something big. Who knows what the Stripe founders, what inspired them when they were kids. You're in some tough family situation and you're struggling in school because your parents don't have a lot of money. You're trying to think like, well, why should I go to college? Why should I get a PhD? It's sort of like, well, I want to go to space. Like, that's cool. I want to do something big. I want to make a difference. And so the dreamers have a positive externality of inspiring everybody. So space to space, people living on the moon and Mars, is it's always great to have some people who are nuts, but they're not really nuts. They're just half nuts and they're doing things that are big and they help all of us reach and aspire to be bigger. And so we always need these big romantic efforts to inspire people to do more ordinary things like make less energy intensive acts or whatever. And then sometimes in order to go to space and live space to space, you have to invent a less energy expensive X. And so that inspiration, those big thinkers, those people who really make us think, wow, let's do something really amazing. Let's capture carbon. Let's do clean nuclear power. Let's whatever it is. We need dreamers and doers. The thing about some of these people is they do shit. They don't talk about it. They don't plan. <laughs> they go do shit. They bend metal. They make machines that make machines when you can't get the part you need. Those kinds of people help everybody else say, okay, well, 
I can create things too. One of the great interviews is one that Musk did, which is when you have centralized people setting rules and we want you to do this and this and this, as you're the maker, as you're the doer, people are saying, well, I could save 10% doing this. No, you can't do that. That's not in the spec. We have to do it this way. And having a decentralized system is what allowed the Falcon, which was what allowing SpaceX. Because as you're doing things, you're just saying, well, why do I do that? Or let's try doing this. That's how you get these step functions. And you get this Lollapalooza of, wow, this is better. So this is better. We sell more and this is better. And then other people say, oh, he's doing this over in this industry. I'm going to take it and move it over here. And it is these people who are going to zero to one, who really swing big, who occasionally find something, and everybody benefits. And so this concept of feedback loops, externalities, lollapaloozas, and then also, I think people are watching this space stuff and they're saying, well, this is many disciplines. I'm good at physics. I can help out. Years and years ago, I met Jerry King, who was president of defense and space. We were talking to him about his, he was saying, yeah, I got 30,000 people working for me, a lot of engineers. And he said, I got seven that can design an entire airplane and do the whole thing. 30,000 engineers, and they can all design a system or a subsystem or whatever, but only seven can understand the whole thing and how it fits together and the people and the resources and the financing and all that. He said, I got seven and I can tell you their names. And there are certain people who know how to make everything put together. They're doers. They make things happen. They take risks. They're sponges. And when you meet one of these people, you realize it's just sort of a gift to humanity. They happen to be here at the right place at the right time. It's like Buffett says sometimes, if you'd been born 300 years before, you'd be nothing because only his skills were applied in this particular situation. But I think you have these amazing people who are doers who help us move forward. You mentioned a lot about comparing this to like VC math or optionality. Sadly, a lot of options expire worthless. And there is a scenario in which in 2040, it's not a trillion as estimated by Morgan Stanley, it's a linear growth from here or something. If this goes wrong, meaning this doesn't become the next massive thing, what do you think the top reasons are that we would attribute that to? Like, What are the big impediments or risks that could stop this from happening? The biggest challenge for space is what's happening on Earth. And so you always have the spread of terrestrial alternatives that can limit the size of the market for anything. But my view is if the space industry thinks correctly about where it's going and always focuses on what somebody else can't do and focuses on the nature of humanity, like the magic of Craig McCaw is that he's a savant and he's dyslexic and he looked at the world and he said, he hates the office. Like we like to go on a seaplane as much as anything. And he likes to be out of the office and doing things. And he said the human, he thought anthropologically, the human is naturally nomadic and they're not going to want to be tied to an office. And he's just delighted. I don't have a phone in my office. We'd rather get in a seaplane and go talk as we're flying over to have lunch somewhere a hundred miles away. But the point here is that he thought differently. But I think space people need to think that way too, which is don't just replicate what's on the ground. Like somebody did a review of SpaceX Starlink and they said, oh, this isn't as good as my fiber connection. Give me a damn break. This is why Ewan calls it better than nothing. It's not designed for that situation. Of course, it isn't better than fiber, but it's different than fiber. Like mobile phones aren't like a landline phone. It's different. You can move. You can do things. You can get out of your, have it everywhere. It can be ubiquitous. It can be wireless. You have to think 
don't replicate, you have to think, create new value. And that's why I go back to this thing, which is I think most of that one trillion will be new services that we haven't even thought about today or didn't think could be that big. The last thing that I'd love to talk about topically and then close with a fun question is politics and defense. Space is strange. Leo is strange in the sense that, like you said, it's literally everywhere. There's no international lines. There's no maritime law yet, I don't think, in space. How do you think this will progress? Usually defense is like at the cutting edge of technology. And NASA, in some ways, was sort of a defense-like early initiative. And I imagine that all sorts of like kinetic weaponry and other crazy stuff might be enabled space to Earth or space to space, attacking other people's satellites. What do you make of the politics and defense side of this new space frontier? I think it's hugely important. And it's important because defense is completely different than it used to be. We used to think about, okay, you have a war and there'll be a front. We have all these tanks and they'll line up against each other. You have this battle. And if you look at the way things are going right now, we're basically moving to a defense force that's more and more special forces, that's more and more rapid deployment, that's more and more machine learning, fighting machine learning, more and more autonomous drones. It's more and more how long will fighter jets still have a person in them? And so you need connectivity. You need connectivity in the poles. You need connectivity everywhere. You need connectivity on the move. And so this stuff is absolutely essential. It's no longer millions of people at a huge front and some people going south in Africa, some people going north and this giant sort of battle. It's small, mobile forces, a lot of autonomous weaponry. This is everything for space. They need connectivity everywhere all the time. And they also need it in multiple places. This isn't classified, isn't dark, but you take an F-35, its communication system uses every band, S all the way up to millimeter wave. It's embedded in the skin. It's expensive, but that kind of technology is getting cheaper. But the point is, it's going to be in drones, it's going to be in predators and everything else. And then you're going to have a lot more special forces going in and out. There was just an article about the Chinese having AI that helps their pilots be better dogfighters. The next step is just no pilots. Take the pilot out of there. <laughs> yeah. And like, they're expensive to train when they can't operate as quickly. And so the point here is that the ubiquitous connectivity from a defense standpoint has never been more right. And the military knows it. And it's super important. So we need to have advanced antennas. We need to have advanced systems. We need to have the ability to override. There are a lot of payloads up there that already can do things that nobody can talk about. But it's absolutely essential. Nobody is more reliant on comms and satellite comms than defense. And that's for every country. It's hugely important. What do you think about the rule of law? Like how will the rules be set and upheld in space? So space is is super interesting in that the earth spins. And so in the early 60s, there was a space law treaty and they realized that nobody can own space because you constantly, the space that you're looking at is different space like all day long. (laughs) So they came to this conclusion, well, everybody owns space. But then we have to have this organization that sort of governs like how it's used. And that means you have a treaty. That's the way you do it with the oceans. That's what we do with space. And they said, okay, we're a treaty organization. We'll have this thing called International Telecommunications Union. And people say, okay, yeah, and they issue regulations. Yeah, kind of. They're not really regulations because they don't have a police force. They can't enforce anything. All they do is they have a treaty that they interpret. And if somebody violates the treaty, all they can say is, hey, you violated the treaty. And other nations can say, hey, you violated the treaty, but there's no cops. So we have to sort of all get along. And so space is very unusual because it's not property rightsable in the same way because the earth spins. So we all have to get along. Space debris, space law, orbital slots, the IT performs an important function. But in the end, 
there's just a whole lot of treaties and a whole lot of regulation. And we could spend hours and hours talking about how the allocation for Starlink came into place. Basically, a team of six of us at the start, and then eventually about 25 people got that allocation, 1995, the World Radio Conference. It was a momentous thing, but it's always tenuous because somebody can just say, nope, I'm not going to follow the rules. And so truly, with space law, we all have to get along. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. And one could foresee sci-fi stories if there's no sovereignty or borders or whatever, like you need offensive abilities and defensive abilities. And it comes back to military and some strong man or strong woman will do something drastic and it'll be fascinating to watch. (laughs) It'll be crazy. Exactly. It's one of these things where I wish I was going to live long enough to see it because it'll be fascinating to watch. And the potential for good, though, is bigger than the potential for bad. Everything has trade-offs, but the potential for this to be wonderful is much, much bigger than the potential downsides. But we do need to be careful and do need to have rules. Everything needs to be thought through carefully because these things are big, but we've got some big problems to solve. I'd love to close with something just totally fun and fully speculative. And obviously none of us know anything about when this will happen, but just for a fun closing device for a really interesting conversation, which is just some over-unders on stuff that might happen in the future. So I'll start with the moon. Would you take the over or the under humans living on the moon in the same way they might live in Antarctica or something like this in the year? I'll set the line at 2035. Under. How under? I would say I'm just swag, more like 2060. It's just there's a lot of things that have to be done to go right. So you take the over in the sense you think they won't live there before 2035. Yeah, but then progress will be fast. There's this old Bill Gates line that Progress tends to be slower than you think in the short run, but in the long run, it's bigger. And so I think this applies there. So I was sort of pulling dates out of the air because I didn't anticipate the question. But basically, the general principle is it will take longer than we think, but it will be bigger than we think when it does happen. Things tend to go nonlinear. Progress tends to go nonlinear. So it will take a little longer to get humans living on the moon like they're living in Antarctica. But once it happens... It'll happen in a bigger way than we imagined. The internet was that way. Software is that way. We're sort of living in it right now. So that idea applies in a lot of situations. I'll modify my second one, which was going to be something similar around Mars, and just change the question a little bit to be, what is the incremental benefit of having the same situation on Mars if the moon works? So it seems like, obviously, it's a bigger planet. Maybe there's more resources there or something. But just give us your thoughts on whether or not we'll actually see people living in colonies on Mars, the BHAG, that is Elon's big goal. So Mars is just so much bigger a challenge. I mean, if you get into the specifics of it, it really is nuts because Mars is only aligned with the Earth at a certain time, like it's like every 26 months or some number. And Elon's plan is you take a lot of these starships, like a hundred of them, and you launch them up and they're sort of rotating around the Earth, getting ready to go there in a convoy. They're probably going to use CB radios or whatever, but they're up there hundreds of these things circling around the earth. And then the right time comes and we say, go. And then they all go off in a daisy chain or a conga line or whatever, the conga line all the way to Mars. It's like, that's nuts. These things are huge. You got people in them. They're circling around the earth, waiting for clearance from mission control to take off. The challenges of going to Mars in terms of creating habitability and whatever, like the head of SpaceX, this woman who's very impressive woman, she just said it's the ultimate camping expedition because you got to bring everything. Some of the early people who are going to go to Mars are going to be geologists because we're going to have to learn to make shit right away. 
And so it's really the big horizons thing. And again, people will say, oh, well, we should be working on energy or whatever. Like this is a small amount of money in a relative sense. These are big horizons. It's inspiring people. We're involving new technology. It's not a lot in the relative scheme of things, but it's inspiring. It's cool. It's big. But the challenge is going to Mars. If you actually start looking at the logistics of these caravans and getting the launch right and figuring out how to eat and all these things, it's just getting Mars is bigger. And then sort of say, okay, but we're going to go outside the things that orbit the sun and we're going to go further than that. Well, going to Mars is a step in that direction. And so everything is incremental. And so it's just the next step up. But I think from moon to Mars isn't just a step, it's a leap. And so in the coolness and the fact that somebody's thinking about it and dreaming about it, I hope somebody's dreaming about fixing carbon capture. And I hope someone's dreaming about health and education. I hope somebody's dreaming as big as Elon is, as Bezos is. You've got to have people who are really trying to change things in a fundamental way, but people who are bottoms up, who are practical, and also who are builders, who do shit, who make things happen. Like, I just love this woman, Shotwell, who's the head of SpaceX. She's like so solid, business and the numbers and everything else. Elon's a dreamer, but she's going to make sure the trains roll on time. For every Craig McCaw, you got to have a Jim Barstow or somebody, uh, John Stanton or somebody behind them that is making sure that all the legit, or whatever, and Elon does an amazing job, but having her and the other people and the people he's recruiting, the caliber of people that are being recruited to SpaceX is extraordinary. I have friends who've worked there and whatever, and I know you have someone who worked there, like extraordinary people. And the thing about life is extraordinary people like to be around extraordinary people. And once you get some extraordinary people, then other people go there and then you get more extraordinary people. And pretty soon you got this amazing thing and they're doing amazing things because they love to work with extraordinary people and they're working on weekends and they're also inspired to try things. We need inspiration. I think SpaceX is inspirational. I think OneWeb is inspirational. I think Blue Origin is inspirational. I hope Jeff spends more time at Blue Origin because I think it could be more day one going forward. But big thinkers doing big things in new ways. Trent, I think it's the perfect place to end. We've talked a lot about space today, obviously, but I think about something bigger too, which is just the example that some of these entrepreneurs set and setting huge goals and big horizons and lots of uncertainty. Such a fun conversation. I've learned so much about space from you over the last couple of months. I appreciate you doing this with me here today. Thank you. Super. I can't help but get excited thinking about the resources being dedicated to space today. Whether it's enhancements in our ground economy or expanding civilization beyond Earth, the future seems bright. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. <laughs>